Sometimes it feels like you can hear your own thoughts while walking through the Supreme Court corridors. It's not rare that you can get from one end of the building to the other without seeing or hearing a single other person. But after spending some time here, it dawns on you just what goes into each and every case. Hundreds of people work here every day. Some people keep the court safe. If the prisoner is being sentenced um, and they get really angry, you want to already be on your feet ready to respond. Others keep it open and transparent. A lot of the things that happen in courts people wouldn't know about um, unless we're there. Some work in behind the scenes desk jobs. We're really quite critical in how the court operates. The judges have a reliance on relevant, accurate information current for their needs. While others have prominent roles in the courtroom. Silence or stand please and remain standing. Some people have been here for decades. People who know that I'm here say, oh, you must like blood and guts and gore and horrible things. And I said, no, if anything, it makes me more of a pacifist. And others have just started. The people who get their way into an associateship position generally have other plans that they're chasing. And this is a waypoint to the larger ambition. The vast majority of people here aren't judges. You'll never hear about them on the evening news. You won't have family arguments about their decisions over Christmas lunch. You might not even know they exist. But they're all just as crucial in keeping the wheels of justice moving. This episode is about them, the people of the court. The whole truth and nothing but the truth. And they shall be heard. And they shall be heard. The whole truth and nothing but the truth. but the truth. I'm Evan Martin and this is Gertie's Law. So my name is Kate Locke. I am a prison officer for County Court and Supreme Court and I've been in the role for roughly about eight, nine months now. I met with Kate over the road in the basement of the County Court. We walked down a narrow corridor passing a number of thick metal prison doors. The cells are mostly empty as the bulk of today's prisoners are having their matters heard in the nine stories of courtrooms above us. We sit down on a pair of couches in a small break room, but with white painted concrete walls and no natural light, it feels a bit like one of the cells it's surrounded by. Kate works with prisoners coming to these courts from all across Melbourne. So obviously females would come from DPFC. That's the Dame Phyllis Frost Centre, a women's prison in Deer Park. So you've got um, MAP, MRC. The Melbourne Assessment Prison and Melbourne Remand Centre. Ravenhall. Um, there's Hopkins, there's Port Phillip. So they, they can come from anywhere. Um, the prisoner transport will bring the prisoners in. They'll get a snack when they get here and a cup of tea. And there's um, t- uh, televisions in the, in the cells, in the day cells, so they can watch the news, keeps them, you know, keeps them calm. They're people, they're not animals. Um, once court is ready to go, uh, an officer will be assigned uh, that prisoner, so that means that that officer will sit with them in court for the most of the day. You sit in court with them once the court proceedings are finished for the time being or it's adjourned, you'll take the prisoner back up to you know, their day cells. They might you know, just need to go to the toilet, you'll assist them to get them to the toilet safely. Um, when the day is ended, um, the, the, the transport comes to pick them up. Uh, what led you to this role? What were you doing before here? I was actually mining. Uh, up in Queensland before I come here. Uh, moved back down here just to be closer to family and um, some of my family have been in corrections in New South Wales and so 
hearing the stories from my uncles is, is interesting. And plus, you know, you've got, you got to have a heart to come to a role like this. And um, I care for people. So I really want to help when they're at their lowest point. Heart might not be something that's commonly attributed to prison officers, but according to Kate, it's a prerequisite. In a court setting, it can be slightly difficult, but we're also not just um, dealing with the prisoners themselves. We're also dealing with the prisoner's family or the accused's family and the victim's family. And you have to be able to to talk to them, to be able to speak to them. Um, liaison with, with obviously a prisoner and when they're sentenced or especially if they're reminded they could be extremely upset you need to be able to talk to them calmly or even just let them vent sometimes they just want to talk and it means absolutely nothing to you but it means something to them and if you brush them off or you know you say you don't care or you sort of go whatever um, it can be really disheartening for them because they're, they're just looking for something a little piece of hope that gets them through because sometimes the jails are so big um, they they don't get that that in that one-on-one interaction without their mates around which can be very important too because they can tell you something they might not be able to tell the officers at their prison so you're able to get that information from them and then pass that on to their prison so that can be really important as well and that's where you need to have that soft heart to let them speak to you what kind of information would that be it could be any be anything from uh, information to do with other prisoners maybe that's happening at the jail, so if, if something might be going on. It could be information about self-harm, um, that they could be thinking about it or they were thinking about it. Or it could be simple information of um, something that might have happened to their partners on the outside and they haven't been able to tell anyone um, for fear of, you know being poked fun at or something like that so it's just those little things that probably don't matter to us if, if we're out in the community but really matter to someone when they're locked away for whatever they've done not only are you allowed to be friendly with the with the prisoners but you're actually encouraged to yeah most definitely um and it's best that you do because you can gauge where they're at if they're really upset and anxious before they go to court you you need to gauge with them to be able to understand what they're going through being sentenced and remanded is hard enough anyway um they don't need us to make it any harder and you might have family in the courtroom that um that lose it which can set the person in the dock off and you you need to be able to um keep a balance of being obviously professional, but also being caring. If you're one of the over 7,000 people currently serving time in a Victorian prison, it would have been Kate or a fellow prison officer who escorted you back to the court cells as you came to grips with your new life. When they come down here, it can be quite difficult because their, their brain is elsewhere. So they can seem quite heightened and quite all over the place. Um, even though you just you still got to let them calm down. Some people get really frustrated and they might yell and carry on and, and that's not an output against us. It's just usually because that's how some people vent and you just need to let that happen. Um, in terms of it being hard for officers, um, we are really good at not getting emotionally involved. The Supreme Court is interesting. It's very different to the county court. Um, a lot of the time you're taking prisoners through the corridors, past the public. What's that like? Scary. <laughs> it can be very scary. Although we're trained very well for it, um, it can be quite confronting because unlike the county court, you don't have a back door that you can just nick out of. You do have to take them through the public. And um, sometimes, yeah, that, that's quite confronting, especially if you've got family or, or, or uh, victims' families that 
that know where the prisoner will be walking that try and you know catch them walking through so that can definitely be a challenging aspect of the Supreme Court as beautiful as the Supreme Court is <laughs> It sounds like a, a really hard job. Do you enjoy it? I do. I do enjoy it. It can be quite difficult. My favourite parts about it is when the prisoners, they're coming up for time served and, you know, they've, got, they've done really, really well for themselves in prison. They've done everything possible that they could. Um, they've got certificates, studied anything that they've done, and the, and the judge gives them a really good rap and almost a pat on the back, but, you know, a verbal pat on the back. Being a prison officer at the Supreme and the County Courts is more about customer service. Um, you know, we're not, we're not guards, we are officers and it is definitely about the customer service that you provide. We're not the face unlike the police and say ambulance officers, we're the behind the scenes people that provide the service to the community that they don't get to see. And um, unfortunately people only see what US television is like. Um, and they sort of have an expectation that's how we must behave and it's completely different to that. I sit down at the bar table in Court 4 with a man who has a job title dating back to the 1400s. My name is Frank Hanson and I'm a tip staff at the Supreme Court of Victoria. Tip staff isn't a common term. I'd never heard of it before I came to court. What does it mean? It comes from way, way back, uh, ye old English days. I think it was actually come from a block of wood with a brass tip. It was called a tip staff. And from what I understand in the olden days when um, the judge, typically say in England, would be looking for, need to call someone to court, he would get the bailiff or the sheriff to go out into the city square, hunt down the, uh, the person they require, the witness, and tap the person on the shoulder with his tip staff, which was this block of wood with a brass tip. He would unscrew the brass tip and inside it would be a note like a scroll and he would just open it out, scroll it and say you are required to be in court tomorrow or today or whenever. And basically that's where we came, our name came from, the old tip staff. Frank has a cool title, but what exactly does a tip staff do? Primarily is to first look after our judge that we've been assigned to. I work with an associate and together we run trials, we do the day-to-day, -day, all the swearing in witnesses, the, the opening and closing of court. All persons having business before this honourable court are commanded to give their attendance and they shall be heard. Hanging on to or looking after exhibits that may be passed up by barristers and also we um, participate in the empanelment of juries and then look after the juries for the duration of the trial. Tip staves probably have more interaction with the juries than anyone else in the court, apart from maybe the barristers. And naturally, they can develop a bit of a bond. We do. Uh, we... We need to be friendly so that we can get them to talk to us and they get to know us. So we need to be friendly, but we can't be mates, so if that's a good way to sort of say. We stay distanced, but I do need to be there and they, for them, and they need to understand that they can come to me for, for certain needs. They need to be able to open up. So certainly long trials, we do build up um, a big a bond in a way, um, and they I think because of the pressure they go through and that I'm their smiling face that, that they see at every break, 
Um, it's probably a bit of a release for them, but we quite often never ever see them ever again either. But uh, yeah, no, there is a bond, yeah, for sure. Tipstaff is also one of the rare roles in the courtroom that doesn't require a law degree. It's a funny thing. Probably maturity is a good background um, and, and a certain life experience, I think. We don't have to be law trained. For me, I was in the Air Force, and when I look at the courtroom here, typically the courtroom becomes my parade ground. The judge is my commanding officer, and the jury would be my flight or my troops that we looked after in uh, in my service days. So I relate it, I relate it that way, and um, it, it seems to work. What's it like coming into this building and working here every day? It's it's interesting. Um, my first month here, I think I spent used to spend about 15 minutes trying to find my office, and then usually about 15 minutes to try and find my way out. Um, you, it, everyone just told me it's a square, but once inside, there's uh, there's walkways and stairways, and they curve and turn, and um, it's very easy to get disorientated. But I love it. I love the um, Love the old building. While preparing for a trial, you're often alone in the courtroom of a morning or a night. Have you seen the ghost? I haven't. I know someone who did see it. They, uh, they said they walked up the jury box very quickly and someone came out at, at them or through them. Um, I'm mindful of it every time I sort of walk up those stairs or push through doors quickly. But no, uh, I'm, I'm a little bit sceptical about the whole thing, but I'm wary as well. So no, I haven't seen a ghost yet. Do you find yourself getting enthralled in the trials or is it just another part of the job now? And it... I get involved in every trial, it seems. Um, to me, it's like a, um, like a good book, particularly cri- uh, crime is very interesting. There's so much detail. It's just like reading one of the best books you could ever imagine. Even some of the most boring common law trials turn out to or quite often be a very good book, but just a slow read, if you like. But uh, I do get in, involved in the trials and immersed in the stories and just amazed at um, some of the predicaments people get in. Yeah, just what I see, it's a, it's a real eye-opener. Like a lot of things at the court, there's no hard and fast rule about a judge having a tip staff. Without one, the courtroom role of a tip staff falls to the associates. After the judge, the associates are probably the most prominent people in the courtroom. They sit right in front of the judge and wear black robes similar to the barristers. My name's Dan Shields, I'm Senior Associate to Justice Macaulay, and I've been with the court since June 2017. I'm probably a little bit older than uh, most associates at the court, I'm 37 now. I worked in financial services and travelled and did other things for most of my 20s. Went back and studied law when I was 30. Yeah, and for me, career-wise, my ultimate ambition is to go to the bar and become a barrister. So working in the court um, for a judge in the Supreme Court um, seemed like the perfect pathway to get exposure to how this court operates and how judges operate and see counsel in action. Is it fair to say an associate has kind of two roles, one inside the courtroom and one outside? Definitely. My judge, Justice McCauley, he has two associates as opposed to an associate and a tip staff. So in that context, the associates share the role of the tip staff between them. So we open and close the court. So uh, once the matter's been called, we keep track of uh, who's talking, the main points that they're making. If evidence is tendered, we record that. If somebody calls a witness, we record that. Please raise the Bible in your right hand and repeat after me. I swear by Almighty God, 
that the evidence I should give will be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Out of court is a totally different beast. Um, it's everything from you know administrative tasks to help the judge, all the way through to legal research and helping with drafting judgments and that type of thing. In a way, it's kind of like I imagine briefing barristers for appearances. If judge is allocated a matter for hearing, we need to make sure that that's in his calendar, that all of the practical arrangements are made in terms of courtrooms, juries, everything's there for him. We liaise with the parties um, and organise the hearing. After the hearing, um, the judge will generally have made orders, so we need to record those, get them out to the parties. Most of the time, the judge will then prepare written reasons. So he will go through his process, and at some point there he might ask us to research a question or he might write most of the judgment and send it to us to tidy up and then we go through an editing proofing process and that culminates in uh, the judgment being released onto Ostley and to the world at large. Ostley is the Australian Legal Information Institute and every judgment and sentence handed down by this court is made public to read on their website. You don't find too many career associates. There seems to be a pretty large turnover. Um, yeah, can you... I mean, there are a few who um, are career associates, but as you say, it's not many. It's hard to sort of pinpoint a reason for that. Part of it might be that <laughs> the roles aren't um, fantastically remunerated. You're here for the experience, and they're also extremely competitive to get. So the people who get their way into an associateship position at the Supreme Court generally have other plans that they're chasing, and this is a waypoint to the larger ambition. Um, so it's a, it's a chapter. In the almost two years that Daniel has been with Justice Macaulay in the Supreme Court, he's run 20-odd trials from start to finish. We've had, a, we've had a few really interesting cases. There was a case that came to us, um, Director of Public Prosecutions and Tupper. It was an appeal from a decision of a magistrate to exclude evidence. And what had happened was the police had gone to this bloke's house and they, had, uh, they suspected him of dealing in stolen goods and that type of thing. They went into his house, they had a look around, they found a few things, and in the course of that police investigation, they asked the man to empty his pockets, then they asked him to take off his shirt, then they asked him to take off his pants, and in the end, um, he was naked. And then they asked him, would he mind crouching down? And when he crouched down, seven grams of heroin fell out from his butt cheeks. So he was charged. The magistrate had to determine whether that was a lawful search. And the issue specifically was whether or not it was a forensic procedure, a physical examination of the body, or whether it was just a normal police safety and evidence search. The magistrate ended up excluding the evidence. They said it was a forensic procedure and that none of the legal prerequisites to conduct one were satisfied. And he referred to the Crimes Act and the relevant provisions. And when you read it, it sounded pretty clear that this was a forensic procedure because it was an examination of the body, etc. The Director of Public Prosecutions appealed that and the police were very interested to know the scope of those powers because they're important when they're dealing with suspects and bringing people into custody to search them. Ultimately, the judge disagreed with the magistrate and said that it wasn't a forensic procedure for a number of reasons. The one that stands out in my mind was that it wasn't physical examination of the body. It was a search... Um, in and around the body for evidence to make sure that the person wasn't concealing weapons and that type of thing. The matter was sent back to be reheard by the magistrate's court, 
where Tupper was ultimately found guilty. There's another really interesting case. The case of Mercy Hospitals Victoria and D1. That was a case where doctors uh, were concerned that a teenage girl in their care was going to need uh, a blood transfusion to successfully get through her pregnancy and childbirth. However, because of her religious beliefs, she was a Jehovah's Witness. Uh, she was refusing to give consent. So the hospital um, came to the court and uh, sought the court's order that they were able to give the blood transfusion. That was a really interesting case because it just involved so many different issues. It was sort of religious belief, um, uh, you know, people's rights to their body, and um, it was a matter of life and death, ultimately. In the end, Justice McCauley uh, gave the hospital, authorised them to give the girl a blood transfusion if she needed it, but only on the agreement and the undertaking that they would try all other alternative therapies first so that it wouldn't be necessary. And um, it was a very weighty decision and it had to, be, had to happen quickly because the young lady was extremely pregnant. And um, we were very happy to find out a week later that the child was born healthily and that no blood transfusion was required. So it really was, I think, a happy ending for everybody. All stand, please. This Honourable Court stands adjourned until 10.30am Monday morning. Um, we're going to go to courtroom four uh, for a presentation. We're then going to observe in court 12 in front of Justice Zammett, and I'll tell you more about that. Uh, and then we'll do a visit to the library. And by that stage, after this morning and this afternoon, you'll be exhausted and your brains will be just full of stuff to try and remember. Uh, my name is Marcin Molan. I'm an uh, education team tour guide and I've been at the courts, this is in my eighth year. Um, our role is to um, take kids and tell them about the court, give them a guided tour and uh, uh, we do a mock trial whereas kids get an opportunity to play different roles uh, in the court. Members of the jury, John Jones is charged with forgery. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, John Jones is not guilty of this terrible crime. I do solemnly, sincerely and truly declare and... Listen carefully to all evidence that is presented. And what's your background? How did you get involved in, in doing this work? The story goes that um, I had a mate who was a court networker, who had another role uh, uh, in the courts, and he said, oh, you should apply. So off I go and I saw this mob on the, the internet and I applied and I went and did this training and I thought, this training doesn't seem familiar and I'd in fact applied to the Office of Public Advocate and became an independent third person for police interviews. But that piqued my curiosity and I eventually found the court network folk, uh, did their uh, training and ended up being allocated to the Supreme Court. And through that court network role I found out about the education team role and was asked would I like to join the education team which I did do and uh, uh, and here I am. And it's all volunteer based? It is all volunteer, I'm retired um, and um, yeah I give up a couple of days a week to do it. What keeps you coming back? What's, what's your, your interest in the court? Does it stem from um, somewhere in particular? What I enjoy about the education program particularly is the curiosity of kids and their interest in the law and it's good to see a different perspective, particularly from a really young person, 
um, and a good judgment of how well the session has gone is when the kids are really uh, filled with enthusiasm at the end of it about it and uh, you know want to come back again and uh, and how that piques their curiosity and the questions they come up with um, are really sometimes quite challenging so one's knowledge of the court has to be quite good uh, a lot of people say well gee you seem to know a lot about the courts and I said well you know I have read the Supreme Court Act the Supreme Court regulations I have read this uh, Crimes Act and it's a very long act and if you're in suffering with insomnia try and have a read of that if you're not asleep by page two there's something seriously wrong um, and uh, I've read the Sentencing Act I've read the Bail Act uh, I've read the um, Evidence Act purely just to inform me when I'm hearing about stuff in court has to go ah that's why that's happened because it's required by law uh, so from that point of view I just found it curious and uh, satisfy that curiosity by reading those acts and by presenting to these kids. Yeah. Excuse me, I'll better get this. Hi, educational with Martin speaking. You got to school? Okay, we'll be out there very shortly. I climb a narrow spiral staircase and open a door to what I have to say is one of the more impressive rooms I've ever set foot into. If you've ever read or seen Harry Potter, it's a bit like entering Dumbledore's office. It's uh, an octagonal shaped room with a 12 light chandelier hanging from the very, very high ceiling. There's gold bound books all around the room, a whole range of topics. It's the, the classics in the true sense of the word. There's Latin and Greek on the shelves. Um, there's Homer. Uh, Voltaire, uh, we have John Stuart Mill, we've got, there's an extraordinary range going through centuries of uh, authors and also some ancient law books. Yep, we're in the library, a must-see for anybody visiting this court. I'm Laurie Atkinson, the Director of the Law Library of Victoria and the Supreme Court Librarian. I've been here five years, Josephine. Uh, so my name is Josephine Murphy and my role is the Manager of Client Services and Community Relations. I've been with the library here for two years. And do you need a legal background to work in the library? It's not a secret that my background is not law. So if there's anyone in the room asking a dumb question, it will be me. <laughs> but uh, so far the judges have been very polite with my ignorance. And uh, you're only the seventh Supreme Court librarian <laughs> yes. to ever be here in 130 years of the building. It's uh, a dead-end job. <laughs> I'll never work again. <laughs> is it a dead-end job or is it just so good that no one wants to leave? It's excellent. It is the best job. Um, we're really quite critical in how the court operates. The judges have a reliance on relevant, accurate information current for their needs. Um, the practitioners also have that reliance, arguably more so than the judges. The practitioners also benefit from the librarian's skills at research and um, it, it's a real joy to watch the team deliver uh, a superior service that improves the way people um, work in the courts. Yeah, anyone who's eyeing off the job is going to be disappointed because I'm not going anywhere anytime soon. And you're only the second woman, is that right? Yeah, Cynthia. After Cynthia left, the, the pages of the Minute Book are stuck together. 
but there is enough recorded on the pages you can read that the committee resolved that the librarian shall be a man learned in the law. So Ouch. they broke ranks with me. By <laughs> three librarians later hiring yet another woman who's not learned in the law. <laughs> nice work. I've just outlasted Cynthia. Who are the main people who come through the library? Is it judges? Is it public? What's the, what's the library for? So the judicial officers that work in all the jurisdictions are probably our main users, but we also have a lot of barristers that walk through the door and a lot of legal profession members that get in contact with us. We also uh, work with self-representing litigants that come through the door, tertiary students uh, and people from the public that want to come and look at the library or find out a bit more about the library itself or the court or get access to legal information. This is pretty different to your local neighbourhood library. The shelves are lined with fat, identical-looking books with titles like Australian Corporations and Securities Report, 2011, Volume 82. What are the books? What's in them? That's a very good question. Um, uh, but we, we do need to limit how much we talk about books, Evan, sure. because the library is overwhelmingly digital. So we'll give you another five minutes on books. <laughs> um, legislation. Legislation is the start of the law, if you like, the, um, passed by Parliament. And uh, the law is what we all have to um, uh, obey as we go about our day-to-day -day life. So we've got the legislation in the library. We also have case law, which is the decisions that the judges make that isn't picked up in legislation. Also known as common law. A key part of forming a decision uh, in court relies on understanding what's happened in previous cases like this. So the library collates uh, the, all of the case law, uh, not just Victorian, right around Australia, we'll pick up case law from all over Australia, um, and also other common law jurisdictions, as well as all jurisdictions around the world might be applied, might be helpful to understand it. So that's the kind of stuff that's on the shelves, but all of that's in the digital library as well. Mm. Uh, the use of the digital, li digital library is overwhelmingly what the library is here for. So the people who come into the library, like Josephine was talking about, that's around about 40,000 interactions a year with the library. Our digital library gets 1.6 million uses a year. So it is overwhelmingly, this is an extraordinary building, but the Law Library of Victoria is overwhelmingly digital. Um, on a personal level, what's it like coming into a building like this? I imagine you'll, you've never worked in a building as beautiful and probably never will. I think it's, it is a beautiful building. We have a lot of students that come in here to study, to absorb the environment and the atmosphere and, and hope that some of the information and knowledge from the law books will somehow get pushed into their head just by sitting here. It is an inspiring place to walk into each mm. morning and to see that level of history just standing around. I tell you, for the first couple of months, it was terrifying, um, but I've relaxed a bit since, in fact, yesterday I was having to fire up a bit to sit down and look at committee papers for another couple of hours. So I cranked up Bruce Springsteen and sang along to Born to Run for a bit and <laughs> got my energy levels up again. So I think it's fair to say I've, um, I've made this my spiritual home. The next two people I meet with likely spend just as much time in Victorian courtrooms as anybody. They're the link between the justice system and the public. And if you've read a newspaper in Melbourne recently, chances are you've also read some of their work. 
My name's Adam Cooper. I'm a court reporter with The Age. I've covered courts for about six years now, and I've worked at The Age for about eight years. Uh, my name is Shannon Deary. I've been a court reporter with The Herald Sun for eight years, and I've been at the paper for about 12 years. How did you come to be court reporters? Were you always interested in crime and the law? I was always in- interested in crime, but just mainly from a reading crime stories point of view. I actually worked in um, sport before that at The Age, and a vacancy came up and no one had put their hand up and I did, not knowing what the role really involved, but um, as soon as I did um, and got the position, I yeah just was instantly sort of attracted to it and I've found it really stimulating and interesting and rewarding ever since. I was actually terrified of the idea of court reporting and um, I was sent up here as uh, a fill-in. Someone had gone on leave, so I was sent up for, I think, a month or something and uh, I fell in love with it. I just... Uh, Really, really enjoyed uh, the day-to-day life of a court reporter. Went back to the office and asked the boss to come up full-time. What's so appealing about it? I think it's the drama that you see in in court every day. You know, every day is different, um, which is much like most of journalism, but I think it's even more so in court. You you really never know what you're going to get in a courtroom. And you can't make this stuff up half the time. Sheer determination against counsel costs sheep owner $200,000. Adam Cooper, 2013. Man jailed for stabbing wife after she hired private investigator to follow him. Shannon Deary, 2013. Man who killed ex-wife marched from Supreme Court after outburst aimed at son. Adam Cooper, 2017. Teen killer back behind bars in ongoing life of crime. Shannon Deary, 2018. You see sort of crime shows and you sort of know what the script is and everything, but then the cases we, we hear, they're just sometimes they're just amazing and often they're, they're tragic as well, unfortunately. So, yeah, they can be really emotional, but, and, but it, it does feel like this role, and it's not a reflection on my previous role covering sport, but this really does feel like a meaningful role as well, that you, you're writing about stuff that really matters to people as well. If Adam and Shannon aren't in court, Trials are still going to run. Judges are still going to make their decisions. Offenders are still going to be jailed. The work of the court is not going to change. But when it comes to public faith in the system and keeping justice open and transparent, they're as crucial as anybody here. As the old saying, you know, uh, justice not just being done, but being seen to be done. A lot of people don't know that our courts are open and anyone can wander in. And we are able to tell the stories that are happening in the courtrooms and, and showing justice to be done. A lot of people will not agree that justice is being done, you know, uh, through reading our stories, but it, it, it's giving them the opportunity to be in that courtroom um, through reading our stories or seeing TV news or radio reports and hearing and reading about what's going on inside the courtroom, how judges are reaching decisions and, and you know, why sentences are being handed down, that sort of thing. I see our role basically as translators, explaining things that happen in courts and conveying the drama and the emotion and the significance of it all to, to readers. Can you take me through a regular day in court? Is there a regular day? I think the only regular thing about um, Supreme Court is that lunch is at one o'clock. I've never seen a judge <laughs> or a lawyer speak past one o'clock. But as far as a, a sort of standard day for me, I'm usually here at around eight o'clock. You know, I'm here when the cleaners are still mopping the floors and the prison guards are opening up the, the cells. Trucks are coming in with the prisoners. I start going through the lists and putting some sort of list together of, of what we're going to cover for the day. Um, and then it's a madhouse after that, running from, you know, between courts, within the Supreme Court and outside the Supreme Court, and just trying to cover as much stuff as we can. 
partly because you n- never actually know what's going to happen. It's regular in that you're stressing in the morning about what you're trying to get to, um, and then eventually you settle on a case that you're covering for the day, then you stress about what you're going to write, <laughs> you stress about where your opposition is, then you're basically trying to make sure you're, you know, you're at the right place. It, uh, sometimes it feels like, yeah, putting the right number on, on roulette table, you know, hoping that you've got the right ones. One of the biggest sort of examples I've got of that is that I was covering the Sean Price murder trial. Sean Price is currently serving a life sentence for the murder of 17-year-old Marsha Vukatic and the rape of another woman in the days following. I'd gone over there in the morning with a whole bunch of other journalists and um, the police officer involved in that case had said, look, nothing's going to happen today. Um, It's going to be a very quick mention and it's going to be all over. Almost everybody else left the court, but I thought I'd better hang around just in case. The ABC also hung around. Sean Price came up, it was a video link, and uh, his lawyer said, yeah, there's nothing going to happen today, we're just seeking an adjournment. And Sean Price said, no, no, cancel that. I sacked my lawyer, I'm going to plead guilty. So even with all the sort of, you know, sources and tips you may have, you actually never know what's going to happen because it's, it's all happening right in front of you and things can change on the spur of the moment. So, you know, the, I think the key with court reporting, it sounds silly, but it sounds obvious, but it's, it's the absolute key. You've got to be in court to, to report what's happening. There's a clear rivalry between the two mastheads in Melbourne. Um, does that rivalry extend to journalists on the ground? Yeah, I, it's not fun getting scooped. <laughs> it's pretty much wrecks your day. Um, and it's journalism, yeah, it's a competitive sort of industry. Um, people don't survive in journalism unless, they're, um, unless they've got a competitive streak. Uh, that said, though, there's a really good... This is one of the things I really like about courts is there's a really great camaraderie among all the reporters who cover courts. It's not sharing stories, but um, checking quotes for accuracy's sake and letting people know um, when a case is on. And Because we're all sort of confronted with this issue of trying to be at several places at once and trying to make sure that what we've heard is what we actually did here. Uh, yeah, there's, there's a huge rivalry. I mean, obviously, like Adam said, you, you, we, everyone wants to have the exclusive. And every day around Victoria, there's literally hundreds if not thousands of court cases happening so there's that many exclusives there to be had that said if you're in a courtroom and another court reporter walks in um, I've always taken the view that the story is only yours alone until someone else comes in the court Uh, once they're there then you there's there's no use not helping each other are you proud of what you do I'm very proud of the job I do I think it's a really important job I think both newspapers are, are really dedicated to their court reporting rounds, and I think it's important that that stays that way. You know, I said it earlier, but we're the link between the courts and the public. I think people, when they're in the Supreme Court, they want to know that they matter, um, and coming to court helps them feel that for a start. Justice helps that, um, but you know, families want to know that their dead loved one meant something to somebody, um, and. If it's reported, if it's reported accurately, um, that helps that process, if that makes sense. When you first push open the heavy wooden doors of the Supreme Court, you can't help but be intimidated by its imposing presence. But the first thing you might see is a small information desk just past the entrance security. 
Perhaps you'll be welcomed by a lady with dark glasses and a white cane. I'm Cathy, I'm a volunteer for Court Network and I'm in my 23rd year here at the Supreme Court. What is the Court Network? Court Network's an organisation that's across the state and Queensland providing support information and referral to court users. Uh, court Network goes back many, many years now. It's, uh, what I'd think... 40-odd years. Um, We're there to meet and greet, be it court users, be it practitioners, be it visitors. We get all sorts who'll come across and say, I'm here today because I got charged with something or I'm here today for the case of so-and-so. And And we problem-solve, basically, taking them around to the court where they need to be. If it's not on the list or we're unaware of what's happening, chasing it up for them. So it might be sending them to registry, um, ringing witness assistance or registry to find out what's going on. There's always someone to assist, something to do, something that needs to be learnt or understood. Um, So then I can answer general questions for the court users because often court users will go into our office and go, they said something about uh, such and such. What does all that mean? And I might say, well, we need to get the instructing solicitor in the break or the informant to come and talk to you, but I wouldn't panic just yet. Mm. Keeping calm is really important because people are worked up enough They don't need someone else adding to the mountain of stress for them. The court network has volunteers in courts all over Victoria, including the various magistrates' courts, the regional law courts, VCAT, as well as the county coroners' and children's courts. But their work in the Supreme Court is unique. Here we end up with a longer-term relationship often with families due to the nature of the cases. Uh, We may pick them up through the information desk or they come in at the front door and they're a bit lost and they'll be here for mentions and post-committal directions wanting to see their loved one if it's on the accused side or if they're for the victim's family. Often many victims feel like this is all I can do to be here for my deceased Love one. You're seeing people at the lowest um, in their lives. How, how do you deal with that personally? Um, being very organised, very clear in my thoughts. And as one of my old bosses at network used to say, there's a framework of reference and there's millions of possibilities of what can happen, but you can't help anyone if you're all crying over and fighting over the same box of Kleenex. When you think about it, that's logical. You can't help anyone if you're all extremely distressed. How did you get involved? A partner at the time, he read the ad for the court network and said, "Um, you ought to try something like that. You're always interested in the law and politics and all that sort of thing. Uh, And it went from there. But you didn't have a background in law? No, 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 no. So um, what was it like coming here for the, the first time? Um, I was very blessed that court staff, homicides, uh, and basically everyone around me was very supportive and inclusive and made sure I knew how the place worked, uh, I knew what was happening around me and could understand what was going on around me because of my philosophy, if I understand what's going on, I can then simplify things to explain for families. It's all volunteer based and you've been here 23 years. Um, What keeps you coming back? I can be useful. 
I, I like the place. I, I like the fact it's a learning curve you never get to the end of. And me having disability issues, there's not a lot of things in the world that people will let me do that require brain power. I'm vision and hearing impaired, so I'm a white cane user and I have hearing aids. Um, and I'd say also the issue of being here, everyone else's issues who comes into the court are far bigger than mine, so no one gives a hoot about my issues. They just say, Kath, get them to court 11 or can you fix this problem? And that, which is good. Um, before I was here, I was elsewhere, um, nothing to do with network where I was stuffing envelopes with brochures and putting stamps on envelopes. So I got bored with that very quickly and would race myself. Someone would put a pile of 500 in front of me and I'd time myself to see how fast I could do it. So it was fairly obvious I've required something that demanded more in my brain than you know what was being offered to me um, so being here was a whole big strange world I've never forgotten what it's like to walk in and be intimidated by the place and back in those days when people said like someone needs to go over to the prothonotry and uh, I thought I'll never get my tongue around the word <laughs> let alone remember where to um, direct people to I look forward to coming in. Often if there's a spare moment, if I'm out in the courtyard, and I'll think how blessed I am to be here and doing the court network stuff that I am, um, and that I can do someone a good turn, hopefully, each day I'm here. 23 years is a long time. The year Cathy started here, Paul Keating was Prime Minister, the Fitzroy Lions were still playing in the AFL, and only one of the current judges had been appointed to the bench of this court. People who know that I'm here say, oh, you must like blood and guts and gore and horrible things. And I said, no, if anything, it makes me more of a pacifist uh, because you see the futility of people's silly actions. And but for that one moment in time, it's like a ripple in the pond effect. How many people's lives can be affected, devastation, uh, quite apart from the loss of life of the initial person. And it impresses upon me constantly that anyone but for the grace of God in that moment in time could end up either side of the law and it's all very high and mighty for people to say oh but I'd never be caught in that position but given the physical and environmental positions of some of those people that do come in it could be you would hope you would respond differently to the given situation but who knows ultimately the families have got to go home and face the fact there is that vacant chair at the table. And once all this stuff dies down, they still have to sort out how to deal mm. with but the loss. But your job is just to make things a little easier while a they're at court. A little easier while they're here, a little more personable. I'm not judge and jury or anything else. I'm just here to make sure everyone's doing as OK as they can. Gertie's Law is brought to you by the Supreme Court of Victoria. And remember, if you've got a question you'd like answered, either by us, a judge, or someone else at the court, drop us an email at gertie at subcourt.vic.gov.au. That's G-E-R-T-I-E at S-U-P-C-O-U-R-T dot vic.gov.au. 
Send it in text or even better, an audio file so we can hear you ask the question. In the next episode, we're stepping away from the work of the court and looking into the physical, the history, the art and the architecture of this incredible building.